and um, I've already I've already kind of prayed, so I'm just going to jump right into it if it's okay. Um, if you don't know, we're going through the entirety of the Gospel of Luke, and uh, it's 24 chapters, one chapter roughly per, per week, and uh, so we're on Luke chapter 10. Steve Martell from LA came in here and did 14 out of sync with us, so we'll skip over 14 when we get there, but uh, so that's kind of where we are, and um, as we said earlier, I feel like the Lord's been speaking to us, and um, it's, been, it's been good, obviously. Uh, I don't mean the preaching has been good. I mean, the Lord speaking has been good. Okay, so um, I just want to point something out as we get started. We're going we're gonna to do a little differently. Normally, we will read the whole chapter, and then I'll speak into some things. We're going to kind of insert uh, some thoughts as we read the chapter this week. But I want to start with this, that um, for those of you who have been tracking throughout the year, we started, you may remember, 2021, Minda and I coming back. Um, from a getaway uh, as a family and uh, feeling as though we need to just kind of stop the press of church. We need to stop doing all the stuff. We need to stop the, the, the pressure to, to make this thing happen. And actually, and I think that this has more to do than just Border City Church. This is the church that happened during COVID. Kind of the Lord, perhaps, stopped the press and said, I, there are some... The way we're building and doing church isn't really a, a, an accurate reflection. And uh, you're not satisfied, I'm not satisfied, perhaps the Lord would say. Um, and, and this is an opportunity to get some things right. And so we stopped the press at the beginning of 2021 and uh, just focused on the promises of God. And we just spent some time declaring those things and praying over those things and, we, and worshiping uh, uh, together and, and, and got back to where really what it boils down to is... is Prayer, which includes worship and praise, but prayer together and the Word of God. And I'd say let's perhaps keep it that simple, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't need an Americanized version of what success for a local church looks like. We want to follow Jesus. So we started there, right? But lately, where we're ending 2021 is this sense of the Lord wants to give us actionable steps to do what He's called us to do. So we started with just dropping all the, all the activity, and I feel like we're coming right back to a place where not out of the machinery of ministry, but out of the grace of God and the infusion of the divine call of God into our hearts, wanting to give us actionable steps. You with me? Mm -hmm. Having said that, let's look at Luke chapter 10, verse 1. And these things the Lord appointed 70 others. Anybody remember what happened at the beginning of Luke chapter 9? He appointed the 12 who would become the apostles. Well, here in Luke chapter 10, now he's appointing 70 others. Why is that significant? Because these are, if you can pardon the expression, ordinary disciples. I'm not saying that the apostles are superhuman, you know, or that anybody in the church is like some kind of higher life form. We're all disciples of Jesus, but it's a difference of calling. You follow. And so he appointed 70 others. In other words, you and me would fit into this category. And pointed 70 others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. 
And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give to the laborer uh, for, excuse me, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as they set before you uh, and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go into out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the day that Sodom, in that day for Sodom than for that city. Uh, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, which, by the way, are Gentile cities, as opposed to Chorazin and Bethsaida, which are Jewish cities, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. And so... Um, yeah, so first thing that I want to stop right there and, and, and point out. When Jesus sends his disciples, in, in other words, the, again, the 70, the you and me's, when he sends those disciples, he tells them to pray for laborers to be sent. Have you ever noticed that? It's always kind of interesting. He's sending them into the harvest, and his first instruction is to pray for laborers to be sent. Well, it's kind of like, duh, like, we are the laborers to be sent. And so I just want to point out two things that we can take from that. I'm going to read that again real quick. And these things, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. That's the context. And he said to them, the harvest truly is great. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Before he even gives them instruction on what they're supposed to do laboring in the harvest, the first step is to pray for laborers. And so first thing I want to point out from that is that we find more laborers. These more laborers that Jesus is asking us to pray the Lord to send, where are these laborers? They're, who, are, who are we praying for God to send? Jesus is talking to the 70 disciples. Those are the laborers. So if they're the ones going and they're the only ones really who would be qualified to go, who are they praying that God's going to send? The laborers, the more laborers, are found in the harvest. In other words, as the harvest is reached, they then come into the same cycle of discipleship, ultimately with the goal being that they, the, the harvest themselves, become the very laborers who, who would then go back into the harvest. And why is that significant? Because as we go into the city, as we go into what God has called us to do, that we go with his mind's eye, that the person that I'm reaching isn't just simply, uh, I don't simply just want them to become a convert. I want them to become an ambassador of Jesus himself. I want, I want them to realize in their sonship that they come into through faith in Christ that they themselves are sent just as I am to then go and do the same thing. They become a labor, and that's everyone's calling. But then secondly, and maybe very obviously, if we're praying that the Lord of the harvest is going to send forth labors, I think the obvious thing is we take upon ourselves the responsibility 
to be first in line of laborers to be sent into the harvest. We go. And so even by praying, by instructing us to pray that God would send laborers into the harvest, we ourselves become first in line to go. So let's move on. What I'd like to do is a comparison, again, between chapter 9 and when Jesus sent the 12 and how he sends the 70 in chapter 10. It's very similar in a lot of ways, but why would we bother to go through the comparison? Because I want to help us illuminate perhaps some of the things that would apply directly to you and me as, can you bear with me, ordinary disciples. You follow what I'm saying? Again, we're not talking about superhuman people, the, the, the people who are called to preach and teach, but comparison of the 12 versus the sending of how he sent the 12 versus the 70. First, first kind of point that we want to draw from this. The 12 in chapter 9 went alone. Each of the 12 went singly into a city, village, or town, whereas the 70 went two by two. We're talking about actionable steps again, right? God wants to give us actionable steps. Does God want to give you actionable steps? And so as we're thinking, as we're seeking the Lord around actionable steps of, Lord, how are you sending me? Here is a grid for how we can posture our hearts towards taking actionable steps. It needs to look like this. And the first thing is that the 12 went alone, but the 70 went in twos. So what can we take from, from that? I would say one thing is that the greater the leadership responsibility, the more alone we may find ourselves. So the 12 had a greater dimension of leadership responsibility. And I guarantee you, <laughs> the more God calls you into something of leadership, the more alone it, you, you are. And I'm not talking about being a lone ranger, right? You, we all need to be partnered together. We need to be accountable. Um, you know, Minda and I are graced by the Lord to, to lead Border City Church. We have people who speak into our lives. In fact, right there, you know, elders in the church, we, we, they have an invitation to speak into our lives and vice versa. We don't do this thing alone, but there is an aloneness that comes with that. But what, what about this being sent by twos that the disciples experienced? I would say there is divine wisdom in God pairing them together in twos, and it's the, it's the power of partnership. Um, if we go alone, it's not as good. The, it's, it's not good for man to dwell alone. And one can put a thousand to flight, two, two can put 10,000 to flight, the, the scriptures say. And so there's power in partnership. And one of the, what are the, some of the things that, that partnership, as we think about actionable steps in our calling, what value does partnering with somebody else bring to us? I would say one thing, it gives you extra boldness. If you're in a if you're in a room and you're the only one standing there with faith in Jesus, how many of you would agree with me that it helps to have one other person who kind of sees the same thing you do? And when I say boldness, I'm not talking about like, you know, standing on a soapbox preaching at people. <laughs> I mean, if the Lord explicitly calls you to that, sure. But I'm talking about relating to people, relationship. But there's still a boldness required in sharing your faith. And it is incredibly helpful to have that one other person with you, okay? So there's boldness. Uh, there's also an accountability factor. You know, some of us realtors may know there's something about having another realtor that you, if you have your plan for how you're going to build your business, to have somebody else speaking into that saying, are you actually doing the plan that you said you're going to do? There's power in that. 
And to have that one other person, it's very easy to fall back in what you know God is calling you to do in the way of the Great Commission. But if you partner with one other person, it's a whole lot harder to say, well, I kind of, I felt Lord, I felt led today to maybe like watch horror movies. It's like October. Just kind of put it to the side. You know what I'm saying? You got that one other person, you spur each other on to do what you know God has uh, called the two of you to do. And then, uh, and then another just thing to throw out there is gift mix. You know, there's, there's, I've got my gift set. I've got stuff that the Lord's called me to do, which is great, but it's also lacking, you know? So God's partnered me with Minda and, uh, and now we're, we're the entire package. No, but, but her gifts, I mean, talk about like opposites attracting. We, we, we very much balance each other out and, um, and, and make one another better. So this is, all this to say, as we're thinking of actionable steps, I would like to ask us to be thinking in terms of partnering with somebody. Thinking in terms of partnering with somebody. Next point, the 70 were told to find a son of peace. Did you notice that in verse 5 or 6? The son of peace and to stay with them, whereas the 12 were only told to just don't switch houses. Don't jump from house to house. Stay in one house. What are, what's some of the significance of this? Maybe I'll just read that quickly again, verses 5 through 7. But whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house. Jesus is giving instructions on who to focus on. And the who to focus on is these people called what he calls a son of peace. People who receive you. Remain in that house, eating and drinking, such things as they give, for the labor is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. So a son of peace, what is a son of peace? A son of peace is someone who knows what you're about. So when these 70 went into the city or to the village or the town, they were obviously arriving and announcing something of the reason that they're there. I would imagine they would have said something like, there's a man, Jesus. I don't know if you've heard of him. We're sent from him. He's going to be coming to this city because he sent us here to every city that he himself was about to go. So we're here and uh, we're here to just kind of let you know about his coming. So they heard something about what they stood for. They weren't this, the son of peace wasn't necessarily a believer, but they did welcome him. Are you tracking? So son of peace is somebody who knows what you're about and they accept you. They're, 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 they're positive towards you. You have a positive rapport uh, with them. There's some, they, they may not be a believer, but they receive you and they open up their social world to you. That's what a son of peace actually is. As you're thinking of actionable steps, we're going to be thinking about who are the son, people of peace, sons of peace in our lives. I would say also uh, the 70 were sent not to look for a son of peace, but just not move from house to house. I think that speaks of the, uh, of the audience. What the 12 were doing was to go preach the gospel. They were preaching to a city Whereas the 70 were going and making a personal, in-depth connection with other people. And that's what you and I are called to do. Make in-depth connections with people. Why is that important? Because if the gospel, if the Jesus that is inside of me is going to get from me into the hearts of another person, that bridge building of trust happens through relationship. And so God's saying, look for the people who know what you're about. Maybe they haven't received Jesus, but they receive you. Look for those people, invest there, build that bridge of trust and relationship, 
And in time, as they get to know you and you get to know them, they inevitably are going to get to know about this Jesus who has transformed your life. If they don't, it means that they aren't really getting to know you. Because if Jesus is the center of your life, somebody can't get to know me without finding out about him. And so you're wanting to build that connection and build on that positive rapport. Sometimes Christians, I think, are endlessly trying to seek after a person who is showing no signs of accepting what you're about. And because of our desire to see them receive Jesus, we just invest and invest and invest on somebody who is, is not responding. And Jesus says, uh, the, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he said that, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're targeting people who have a poverty of spirit, who are open. Not people who are rejecting. It's not like we stop loving people who reject the gospel. We love them, but we don't invest there, our, our energies. So uh, the disciples, you and me, we should search out people of peace and invest there. A third point, the 12, the apostles, were, were called to preach. The Greek word used there in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus sends the 12, he says, Keruso, he says, go and preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick and cast out demons. The 70 were called to heal the sick and to say the kingdom of God has come near to you. Say, the, the Greek word being lego, which just means to kind of give advice, kind of share with your words. Why is this important? If you're not called to preach, don't try to preach. Do you know what I'm saying? We don't, we don't have to try to be something that we're not. We can't see Billy Graham and think, I need to, I, I need to articulate the gospel the way he does and, and say it just, no, no, no. You just need to sh tell what you have in the language and the way that you would say it. That's real relationship. That's being transparent and real. And that's what, that's what uh, actually affects, affects things. So um, if you're not called to preach, you or aren't gifted to do that, that's, that's not what you, you don't need to be expected to publicly preach and that sort of thing. That's not what, even what we're talking about. But can I make some conjecture here with regards to the calling? It doesn't say this explicitly in the scripture, but I'm going to use some brain power to think through what this probably would have looked like and to say, despite the fact that they didn't preach, I imagine they were testifying. I'm not talking about preaching, public. I'm talking about just sharing their story. Why do I say that? When the two, when the, when the 70 went out two by two into every city, village, and town, and they were going to uh, cities and towns and villages where Jesus himself was to go, think of how that conversation would have gone when they go into the, to the place. They're, they're preparing the way for Jesus. I don't know, kind of knock on the door. And, oh, bro. <laughs> Stanley, over here. That's hilarious. <laughs> I imagine they probably would have, would have gone to a, a person and, and said, like I said earlier, we're, we're with Jesus. I don't know if you've heard of this Jesus guy, but we've been, we've been tracking with him. And he told us to come here to your village to let you know that he's going to come. And he wants you to be ready for him to come when he, when he gets here. So what do you think the, the person hearing this would have said, especially had they never 
heard Jesus before. They probably would have known, well, who's Jesus? Like, what? why do I want to know about Jesus? Well, what would have been the natural next thing? I imagine that they would probably be saying, well, let me tell you what we've experienced with this guy. Let me tell you some of the things that we've seen him do. We've been tracking with him for a year now. And like, we've been seeing this, this, and this, and this is what did happen in my life. And do you follow what I'm saying? I mean, would you agree? That's probably the way the conversation would have gone, right? What were they doing? Testifying. And when I say testifying, I'm not talking about getting your six points of how you're going to share your testimony of how Jesus, no, no, no. I'm talking about just sharing. Like, this is what he did. And that's exactly, I would argue, what you and I are called to do in our calling is to simply share what we have seen and heard of Jesus. So the 12 were sent to preach and cast out demons and heal the sick. The 70 were to heal the sick and to say, and can I just put in there, that I believe without a doubt this should suggest that even if you're not called as an apostle or in a preacher, evangelist, or whatever, it is ordinary in the call of God to pray for the healing of the sick. And we need to be taking that as an opportunity to pray for people, I would say any needs that we see that, that are significant, but pray for the healing of the sick. This was the 70. This was the the, the ordinary disciples uh, being sent to do this. And then fourthly and lastly from this section, I just want to point out the 12 presented the full message and demonstration. Again, Jesus called him to preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. In other words, what he called the 12 to do was to do the same thing that he himself had been doing. Would you, would you agree? That's what that was. Preaching the kingdom of God, healing the sick, casting out demons. Whereas the 70 were sent to prepare people for Jesus to come. And then Jesus would come and do what Jesus comes and does. So the 12 were to do the thing. They, there was another scope that they were called to do. The 70 were, were called to prepare the way and just to announce his coming. And then Jesus would come and do that. Why is that significant? I would say the 70 were being trained for power. Whereas the 12 we're being trained for power and authority. So uh, let me say what I'm trying to say here. In, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is about to ascend. They asked Jesus, Lord, will you now restore the kingdom of God to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has kept in his own authority. The Greek word being exosia, which means judicial, governmental, legislative, decision-making power. Exosia. It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has kept in his own authority, but you shall receive power, dunamis, from which we get the, the, the English word dynamite, explosive miracle working power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost ends of the earth. You follow? Exosia, governmental power, dunamis, uh, miracle working power, the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit. The 12 were called to have dunamis, like everybody else, the power of the Holy Spirit, but also leadership authority. Not, not all of the 70 were called to have leadership authority. So when Jesus sends them out, he's sending them out with the power of the Holy Spirit, whereas when he sends the 12 out, 
They were sent out apostolically to proclaim and declare on God's behalf. And in a sense, ultimately, they would be called to do that into new regions and villages and towns to plant churches and to start churches and to establish doctrine and to start something, a, a, a organic life-giving church that would be built around the image of Jesus. The 70, not lesser than Christians, but weren't called to that particular work. So when the 12 were sent out, they were sent out to do the thing that Jesus was called to do, the, the, what Jesus was doing. The 70 were, were called to prepare the way for Jesus to do this. Why is this significant? What do we take from this? Is that disciples, the disciples are called, need, we, in our labor of the harvest, the disciples, uh, the ordinary you and me's, we need to think in terms of how can I not just preach the gospel and, and bring somebody to me so that I can disciple them, but rather bring them into Jesus, which in modern day means into his flock, where they're going to experience, uh, where they're going to have uh, leadership authority uh, in their lives, where they're going to have various gifts from various different members of the body, where Jesus can disciple him in the context of the body. Now, I've seen uh, some people, and it's uh, that seems very obvious to me, but it's been surprising to me. I've seen some people whose kind of approach to discipleship is to get somebody saved, bring them to themselves, speak into their lives, and try to disciple them and bring them. That's not the way we do this thing. People are discipled in the context of the church. The church is the plan of God. He doesn't have a plan B, by the way. I know we're all trying to like second-guess church. Church is the plan of God, local church. Uh, that has become messed up and abused and distorted and all that stuff, but it doesn't mean that it's not the plan of God anymore. We just need to clean up church, not do away with church. And so we bring people into the flock. We prepare people by sharing what we have given, for, we prepare people so that they can then have Jesus visit them and ultimately become disciples of him in the context of the flock. Does that make sense? All right, so some questions I want to ask us, and I ask you to... Even think about these questions right here, right now. The 70 were sent to find people of peace. So questions that we can all be asking ourselves, who are my people of peace? You don't need to exhaustively think through your answer to that right here, right now, but I certainly would suggest that we take this, these questions and think through them in the days to come. Who are my people of peace? And secondly, how can I find more? When Jesus sent the 70 out, he didn't just send them to their existing people of peace. He sent them into villages that perhaps they had never been to to find who, who would be a new person of peace in that place. Who are my people of peace? How can I find more? Another question. The 70 were to invest deeply into people of peace, to stay with them. So the question would be, what can I do to foster depth of connection with people of peace? We're thinking of actionable steps, right? Well, here's some handles for what those actionable steps should look like according to Jesus' own call. What can I do to foster depth of connection? I would argue handing out tracts probably is not a great strategy.
I'd say handing out tracks, perhaps if it's done well, is better than doing nothing. But I think it's time that we start thinking in terms of the way Jesus thinks. People of peace, depth of connection, relationship, connection. This thing is ultimately a family that we're building. And so we need to treat it relationally. Just to give you an example, Minda and I, having just moved into this house, we are like, you know, we're not just coming with our agenda, our gospel agenda and, and taking over Stahelin Avenue, but we are having pretty much everybody on Stahelin Avenue in for meals with us. And why is that? Because we, you can't love somebody that you don't know. So if we're called to love, we've got to know them. But our desire in loving people is that they would have, if they don't already, have Jesus. We're not going to cram the gospel down people's throats, but we are going to build relationship with the hope that Jesus manifests through us, speaks through us, and shares through our own testimony with them. So that's what, what we're doing. So the question for all of us would be, what can I do to foster depth of connection with them? Another question. The 70 were sent in pairs of two. I think we should ask, who is my partner? For me, it's Minda, and it's even these boys right here. Right, boys? Another question that we, I believe, should ask ourselves. The 70 didn't preach, but they were called to heal the sick and to share, or to, as Jesus said, say. Say the kingdom of God has come near to you. So the question would be, what approach can I take to hopefully share about Jesus and or pray for the sick? What, can, what approach can I take? What actionable step can I take that would most likely lend towards being able to share about Jesus and or pray for the sick? And then fifthly and lastly, and before we move on, the 70 didn't preach, but they did prepare for Jesus' visit. So the question would be, how can I connect people who I reach to the flock where they'll encounter a fuller expression of Jesus than just myself? In other words, if our actionable steps don't lead towards a person becoming integrated I would say, is a first rung into your own life, into the flock that you're a part of. I'm not opposed by any stretch of the imagination to somebody being called to be, you know, if you reach somebody in New York, it's going to be hard to be part of Border City Church. But we're after connection, relationship with people, bringing them into our lives, bringing them into the empty seat at the table, if, for, to reference Steve Martell's recent message. As a side note... I would, I would ask this question of us right here, right now. Is it actionable steps that we need, or is it more the organic, just Jesus lead me in my ordinary life? Which is it? Do we need the actionable steps, like the 70 had these actionable steps that Jesus gave them to go into the cities and villages and towns that he's going into? Or is it more just go in your ordinary life and be led by the Spirit, and hopefully God will, will use you to, to share something there? Which one do you think it is? I would say the answer is yes. It's not, it, it, we always tend to think in these dichotomies, in these like either-or scenarios. And in the kingdom of heaven, it's so often both and. It doesn't have to be either. 
but let's not f lose the one for the sake of the other. And I would say we tend to have less actionable steps some kind of a plan. We plan how we're going to do our groceries. We plan our, our week. I plan how I'm going to make sure the boys cut the grass and I'm going to do the We plan all that stuff, but we plan nothing around the Great Commission in our ordinary week. And I would say at some point in our maturity, that can't be right. So there's got to be a, a plan. Yeah, I'm kind of saying, I'm kind of emphasizing the opposite of that. We tend to only think we've got to be led by the Spirit, whereas we actually need a, a, a wineskin. No, I'm saying the game plan, but while you're going about your plan, be open to the Spirit. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I thought what you were saying. Okay, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I'm going to move on. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. So let's look at verse uh, 16. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Um, and Rodney, I don't want to like, shoot you down there. I'm just saying, no, I'm not exactly sure if we're going to work this out quickly. And for the sake of time, no, since it's 11 o'clock, I'm, you know, I'm the slow one. And it would probably take five more minutes for me to catch up to where you are. And So he who hears you, hears me. Can we like hit pause there and, and hear that? He who hears you hears me. The idea that what Jesus is saying is when you go in response to my bidding, you're actually representing me. You're an ambassador of him. And I would say, sheesh, that should suggest some, something of humble humility. We're not just kind of going and doing our thing and saying what we want to say to people and thinking, sharing them our thoughts and, oh my gosh, in this day and age, can I suggest that the church needs to be quiet with their opinions about stuff that doesn't have anything to do with the kingdom? Hello, social media. Like, can we stop the political junk that does nothing but drive the people away that we're supposed to be reaching because they disagree with our politics? I'd say we're called to preach the kingdom, not our political persuasions. And so, he who hears you hears me. Jesus isn't a Republican, and he's not a Democrat. He is a king. <laughs> and we're called to, to declare our king in his culture and to represent him. So I think we should be humble in knowing that that is the gravity of what Jesus is talking about. And yet... Because all of us hearing that think, well, I'm disqualified, straight up. And you are, naturally. But the reality is he wouldn't have said this if he didn't place his Holy Spirit inside of you and me to enable us to do this thing. And, but it, it, so I would say humility is suggested there. I would say the fear of the Lord. But there's also something of that thing of sonship. The reality that he has called me, just like Jesus said when he was lost. Remember when he was 12 and his family had to go back to Jerusalem and they found him in the temple and he said, did you not know that I would be about my father's business? My father's business. And he's called each of us into the same thing. He who hears you hears me. 
He who rejects you rejects me. He who rejects you rejects me, rejects the, the one who sent me. He took it a step further and said, it's not even just representing Jesus. It's the entirety of the Godhead. Your Father in heaven is sending you as an ambassador in his name. That's awesome. So let's, let's just kind of tie that to a close. Verse 17, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So I just want to pause there. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. Interestingly, Jesus did not give the 70 power over demons when he sent them out like he did the 12. He told them to heal the sick and to say that the kingdom of God has come upon you, whereas he told the 12 to, to, to heal the sick, cast out demons. And yet the one thing that the 70 are rejoicing about when they come back is how the demons are subject to them. What's, what's my point there? What's, what made the difference between when the 70 were before they had been commissioned by Jesus and when they were actually on this mission and apparently casting out demons? What, what made up the difference? The difference couldn't have been that Jesus gave them authority over demons because he didn't. He gave the 12 that. He didn't give that to the 70. So how were they casting out demons? I would say the difference was they were on mission when they were on mission. My point being is that the longing for the power of the Spirit that many of us in this room have, I believe, is in the harvest. And the church oftentimes tries to the power of the Spirit in the context of just doing our little church show where we get people and we're wanting it to be sex, successful in the sense of that the power of the Spirit is there. The power of the Spirit is most manifest in our lives when we're on mission. This man right here, Rodney, planted a church in 1850 or something like that, back in, in Tennessee. And, and I'm maybe putting words in your mouth, but I, I, from my relationship with him, would say, I think that he would say that the, the greatest regular dimension of power that he saw flowing through his life in that kind of way, healings and things like that, was in the process of planting a new work. There's something about, in fact, um, uh, Taylor had even said something. There's something about the power of the Spirit. He's, he said it from a different theological perspective, but that power tends to manifest when God's doing something new. Yeah. Well, I would say that's true because power manifests in the going. It's, we, oftentimes when a church is planted, it becomes this thing that we now just try to build itself and we're called as a people to be apostolic in going, going into new people, new regions, new territories, and that's where the power is found. All right, so let's move on. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now he gives them that authority. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, and can I just hit pause again there? He rejoiced in spirit. Why is this significant? Because it is the only time in all four Gospels where Jesus is described as rejoicing. And that word for rejoicing is exuberant, leaping for joy, exhilarated. So what was it that made Jesus, in this one instance, particularly exuberant for joy? It was when his disciples entered the harvest as laborers. 
The true target of gospel labor, laboring in the harvest, is raising up other laborers. That is the thing that tickles Jesus' fancy like nothing else. Because it represents a person coming into divine inheritance and purpose and sonship. Coming into what they have been called to do on behalf of the Father and on behalf of heaven. Why would I say that? Why are we even pausing there? Because I want to tickle Jesus' fancy. I want to be a people here in this community, church community, who would tickle Jesus' fancy and cause him to rejoice in heaven. What's the one thing that caused him to do that? When his sons, when his disciples enter into the harvest field and do his ministry. Let's labor in the harvest field and cause Jesus to rejoice. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except uh, who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son reveals to reveal him, wills to reveal him. And he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. So the question I want to ask as we get into this next part and kind of, uh, the, the, kind of conclude this chapter is this. And I'm going to ask you guys another question. You ready? Is it preaching the gospel or social justice? Is it go and make disciples or is it love your neighbor as yourself? Which is it? Yes. Thank you, Dalton. The new guy is one for one already. It's yes. And can I ask us maybe just to close your eyes real quick? We did something similar last week. Just close your eyes real quick. And I want to ask you, be real and authentic with yourself. What is the one people group that you would least likely want to care for? Maybe it's a social, maybe it's a clique, maybe it's a people who work at a certain place, maybe it's a political persuasion, maybe it's a race, maybe it's a whatever. Who are the one people group that you would most likely want to care for? You can open your eyes now that you have that people group in your heart. Luke uh, 10 verse 25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. Hit pause there. Nowhere in the scripture in the Old Testament, does the Scripture kind of boil it all down to those two critical ideas? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, and soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. He wasn't taught that explicitly by the Scripture. That, that in a sense, as Jesus said elsewhere, all the prophets and law hang on these two things. Why am I saying that? Because I would say that this lawyer did some, this was an impressive mental exercise of his evaluation of Scripture to bring himself to that conclusion. That's actually impressive insight that wasn't explicitly given. And can I say so many in the church today 
we have impressive mental exercise of the scripture. We come to the right conclusion. Jesus himself would say, you've said rightly, do it and you will live. You've said, you have done the study, do it and you will live. So, but he, but he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, what I'm saying is he had the heart, the, the, the mind was right. He had the doctrine right. He had the, the right idea, heart not so much, reflected by a lack of behavior. And so the question is, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered. Don't you love how Jesus answers questions? He is not moved by people. Uh, he answered and said this, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance a certain priest, note that, certain priest, what is a priest? A religious authority, came down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, please note that. Why is that significant? Because again, it's, it's somebody formally representing something of the Jewish religion. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Can I say, based on Jesus's use of the examples of a priest and a Levite, not just an ordinary Jewish citizen, a priest and a Levite passed by the person who had been left for half dead. Jesus is underpinning the idea that our religious status on earth will not carry in heaven, carry weight in heaven like our treatment of people will. Our religious status on earth, what's, what can be examples of our religious status on earth? A pastor or a Bible teacher, or you may be an elder or a deacon, or you may be Pentecostal or maybe reformed. None of that stuff is going to cause heaven to rejoice. None of that stuff is going to cause heaven to 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 say value. I'm not saying that correct doctrine doesn't have value. Please don't hear what I'm saying. It doesn't carry weight like our treatment of people. That's ultimately what this boils down to. In verse 33, but a certain Samaritan. I'd say underline that, but we don't use handwritten, we don't use, you know, we use apps nowadays. Highlight that in our app. But a certain Samaritan. Why is that significant? Because a Samaritan was not a true Jew. In fact, hated by the Jews. In fact, would have been seen as an enemy. A certain Samaritan. Jesus, such a good story. You set this up perfectly. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. There's the issue. Compassion always moves. How do we know that? Read verse 34. And so he went to him. He bandaged his wounds. These are actions. Pouring on oil and wine, another action. And he set him on his own animal, another action. And he brought him to an inn, another action. And he took care of him, another action. And then it goes on further. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii. Now we're talking about money. And gave to them, to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever you, uh, more you need to spend when I come again, I will repay you. And so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves. And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise. So very quickly, some thoughts around that. Firstly, 
is that doing to others as we would have them do to us has to be the backbone of the commission. Has to be the backbone. It's not social justice or great commission. It's both. And so many in the church want it to be either or. And I would say that people who want to make it all about social justice are just as wrong as the people who in religiosity have just wanted to cram the gospel down the world's throats. It's not either or. If I really love you, the gospel is the most humanitarian thing that we can possibly do. Either it's real or it's not. And yet, if my love is true and I see somebody hurting and they don't have the ability to help themselves, and I do, it is full-on hypocrisy for me not to do anything about that. Another thought real quick is compassion is costly. (laughs) Compassion is not feelings. Compassion is movement. Sure, it can involve feelings, but if it's not movement, action, it's not really compassion. And so can I, can I just point out that those actions, you know, that we pointed out that the Samaritan took, that he went, that he bandaged wounds, that he poured oil, so on and so forth, that that involved time, which I don't have any of, by the way. If I'm going to think of why I don't share compassion with the person, that's probably going to be my issue because I'm so busy. But we got to deal with this stuff. So it, it took time, it took resource, resource being an animal and being the oil and all that. It took time, it took resource, it took energy, and it took money. It was an investment, right? Another quick thought is the, the correct question isn't who we should serve, because that's what the lawyer asked. Who is my neighbor? It's not who we should serve, but whether we are serving. Jesus didn't actually answer the lawyer's question. He answered another question, which was actually the right question. And at the end, Jesus himself asked a question, which one is more neighbor? (laughs) In other words, he was saying, the lawyer was saying, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' whole story built up to a point of saying, which one is neighboring well? So the question isn't, who we should serve, but whether we are serving. And can I point out that if we need to answer the question, that that Samaritan would have been looked at as an enemy of the Jew? And therefore, the answer to the question, the lawyer's question is, everybody is your neighbor, even your enemy. Remember how I asked us to think and close our eyes and think about who are the people group that we would least likely want to... uh, to serve or to care for, that's that's the neighbor. The issue of biblical mercy is helping somebody who can't help themselves when you can. That's why there's an emphasis in the Old Testament of the people of God helping widows who in that time would have had little to no means to care for themselves, orphans, and the poor. The common theme of biblical mercy is always about helping somebody who can't help themselves when you do have the time, energy, resource, and money to do that. So can I ask you some questions again? And, and, and I ask you again, ask, ask this question of ourselves this morning, but let's take this into our week this week and to be thinking about these questions and be honest, not religious. Let's be honest. And I'm not asking you anything I'm not asking of myself. Do I neighbor?
do I neighbor? And then from that, if not, why not? Let's slay that beast, whatever that is. Another question would be, will I neighbor this week? That's a dangerous question because I believe it leads to a prayer. Lord, give me opportunities. And he has a tendency of answering that prayer. Will I neighbor this week? And then lastly, will I neighbor those I quote-unquote shouldn't? Will I neighbor those I shouldn't? And then we conclude the chapter. I don't want to go deep into this at all, just make a comment. Verse 38, now it happened as they went, he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. Many things. Can I say that you and I all have many things? Us realtors in the room, we have many things. The things that we got to do for the Lord. But one thing, one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away. And I just want to say this in conclusion this morning. Before the Great Commission, and before loving our neighbor as ourself, is loving God. And Jesus defined loving God as sitting at the feet of the Son of God to hear Him. That says, I'm dependent upon you, that says my goal is intimacy with you. I want to be with you. I don't want to do for you. I want to be with you. And I want to be with you so that I can hear you. And it's from hearing you that I then go and do. The Great Commission and the loving your neighbor as yourself have to come from that place. Everything else becomes religious. The very thing that drives the world away. And me, by the way. Good.